Hey, the next couple of weeks, I'll be looking at uh, two sermons on the reasons why Jesus had to die, and then also the reason for the reasons for the resurrection for next week. So today, we're going to have several passages of Scripture that I'd like you to pay attention to. And of course, we are considering this morning um, why Jesus had to die. And some of the reasons people come up with are not the correct ones. We want to uh, consider from the Word of God, not all of them, only some of them, uh, and this morning we want to look at those. If you notice this passage of Scripture up there in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So let me say that the death of Jesus Christ is really, it remains the apex of all human history. And it is clear from this passage of Scripture that Jesus is the final and the complete revelation of God to the world. There is no other that's going to come after him. There's no other one that can take his place. He is the only one. Uh, He is the final word from God. He is God. Now, clearing up some of the misconceptions about why Jesus came to die would be Things like Jesus died because he was overcome by his enemies. In fact, if you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10, in verse number 17 and 18, you will see there, it says, For this reason, John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So, in other words, from that passage of Scripture, there is... The Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ could have called legions of angels if he wanted to, and a legion of angels, about 6,000 angels. And if you remember from the Old Testament, that one angel killed 185,000 soldiers in one night in the camp of the Assyrians. So Jesus had authority to take his life and at the right moment to give it up for us. But before I go on, let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at the Word of God, help us direct our minds and our attentions, Lord, to see that there's no other way, there's no other one that a person can be saved and rescued from their own sin and the consequences of the sin unless they come to Jesus Christ, unless He is their Savior and Lord. And I pray, Lord, that would be true of everyone who listens this morning, that they know for sure that they have believed the way the Bible shows us we should believe. And they have repented and trusted you as their Lord and Savior. If they have, Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless them with the the desire to always want to hear the gospel, that the gospel would never get old. But those who have never come, Lord, who have never called upon you today, Lord, I pray that you would use the word of God to bring conviction and illuminate their heart and mind, give them life so they can believe and repent and trust you as their Lord and Savior. And I ask this in your name, amen. Another reason could be that people give is that he deserved to die. That was the Romans, they believed that, and also the religious leadership of the day they thought that that he made himself God, so therefore he blasphemed and he should be put to death. And the Romans said that he's upsetting everything that's going on, and so we need to get rid of him. Others have said we want uh, that Jesus died to show us how much God loved us. Now, that is a derivative, but it is not the main reason. 
The main reason was that you and I needed to be rescued. And then some say he wanted to leave us an example of how to love others. Now, that, that is true also, partly, but that's not the main reason. This time of year, many people like to watch holiday-related movies. I do. And uh, matter of fact, I drag them out maybe once a year, and I watch them. Uh, one of them is the film The Passion of Christ. And I'm not necessarily saying this is my favorite, but, or, or I even have watched it more than once, but it was directed by Mel Gibson. After the movie came out, the talking heads of Good Morning America discussed the movie, and one of the ladies there said that she just didn't understand why there had to be all this violence. She thought it was supposed to be a love story. Why, you know, she said, Jesus loved the little children. He took them up in his arms. She said, it says in the Bible that Jesus said to love one another. She finally asked uh, and retorted, why did the movie have to end with all the violence, the scourging, the crucifixion? It was too bad it had to end that way. It kind of ruined the story. I guess her version of John 3.16 was, for God loved the world that he sent the valentine with a sweet little poem and a picture of some roses. No, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was the father who ultimately sent his son to die. And therein the greatest love story that the world has ever known. If you miss that, if you miss Jesus and you miss the reason, you miss the truth. You miss the very message that will save you. So you see, God loved enough to give his only son. Now, some directors like to put themselves into their movies. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was famous for this in his old uh, series of movies that he put out. And, of course, well, Mel Gibson did the same thing, but you would not have caught it because he only inserted his arms into the movie. One hand held the spike, the other hand held the huge hammer that pounded the nails into the hands of Jesus, Mel Gibson was making the point as to who killed Jesus. He was making himself culpable as a sinner in contributing to the death of Christ and maybe suggesting that all humans are culpable of this crime of nailing Jesus to the cross. Now, whatever, uh, wherever Mel Gibson lands, as far as his relationship to God, I don't know. And I'm not saying that. But the thing is, is that the point he makes may be a good one, that we are all guilty of nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. We are, we're, we are all guilty by our own sin. And it, it was sin that nailed him there. So here are some reasons why Jesus had to die. And I want to mention to you this morning seven of them. And here's the first one. The first one is, and look at John chapter 7, verse number 30. The first one is, Jesus had to die because he said so. Because he said so. In fact, in John 7, 30, it says, So they were seeking to seize him. No man laid his hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And then over to chapter 8 of John, verse 20, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then over to chapter 12 of John, verse number 27, it says this. It says, Now my soul has become troubled, And what I shall say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So Jesus knew very well that he he came into the world to die, and so he said it all over the place. In fact, all the Gospels tell us that he told his disciple he's going to go, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be 
nailed to a cross, and he's going to rise the third day, but they didn't really get that right away. So Jesus, one of the reasons why is that Jesus said so. A second reason is this, that Jesus' death was the only way to redeem us. The only way to redeem us. To redeem us from what? To redeem us from the consequences of sin. If you remember this passage of Scripture in Galatians, without turning there, just listen to what it says. It says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the ultimate consequence of sin is that it bars one from the presence of God and keeps them out of the kingdom of God. And if a person remains in that condition, they cannot go into the kingdom of God because God cannot allow sin into his presence. Also, we are redeemed from the anger of God. Now, if you are still in the Gospel of John, if you look over to chapter 3, verse 36, a very well-known passage of Scripture, but we are actually saved or redeemed from the anger of God. Yes, and I mean the anger of God, that God is angry at sinners. He's angry at you. And that may be strange to your ears, but it is biblical. It says in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, God does not love you the way you are or the way you were. He does not love you that way. He will save you the way you are, but he does not love you the way you are. That is, in your sin and in your guilt. And you need to understand that you are guilty before God. That's what people need to understand, that you are not in a good standing before God. You are a, a sinner is actually in trouble with God. They are caught in the slave market of sin. And there's nothing that they can do to free themselves or to redeem them from that condition. So the main thing Jesus came to save you from is God himself. The holy God that we serve. Psalm 7 verse 11 in the King James Bible says, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. So you and I, before we came to Christ, if you have come to Christ, we needed to be rescued from God himself. In fact, this word here in the Hebrew is a word that means indignation, that God is indignant with us. In fact, the... Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word orge, which means anger. God's angry. So the very words show that God's attitude towards evil is anger. The truth is that God is holy, and he, he thus is angry with the sinner at this very moment. And there's nothing a sinner can do to change that except come to Christ. A third reason why Jesus had to die is because as sinners, we are subject to the wages of our sins. Now, of course, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that passage of Scripture that if you've been a believer any length of time, you quickly were introduced to, the wages of sin. And here we are confronted with two courses a person can take in the world from this passage of Scripture. 
a soul will either yield to sin, serve it, and earn its wages, or a soul will yield to God, receive the gift, and live. See, without understanding sin, the passion of Christ, whether on the screen or in the book, the Bible, it will have no meaning to you. You won't understand what it's all about. You may even conclude as the woman, why all the violence? Because after all, aren't we really basically good people? But what are wages in this passage of Scripture? Wages are payment. They are compensation. They are earnings. A person, when they work, has a right to their wages, right? And wages are equivalent to work. If a young man works an eight-hour shift at a hamburger joint and makes a wage of six fifteen an hour, at the end of his eight-hour shift, he will gross about $49.20 a day. His wages are said to be the equivalent of the work performed. He or she has earned them. They don't need to thank anyone for them. They actually worked for them. So if wages be the payment for work, sin is the work that earns the payment. So if a person has, as their master, sin, then they earn wages for living in that condition. But they have no choice in determining the wage. It has already been set. Now, what exactly decides the wages for a person who is mastered by sin? Well, according to the word of God, it's the law. The law decides the wages. The law is the record of found in the word of God given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The law reveals sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, in verse number 20, we should turn there, the Bible says this, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right there in that section of Scripture, it says the law came in so that transgression would increase. In fact, the law magnified the sin. That's what it does. Also, the law curses those who try to become right with God through it. In Romans chapter 4, in verse 15, it says this, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. So the law curses those who try to become right with God through it. The law, then, is the deciding factor. In fact, in this passage of Scripture, on the, on the screen, it, it says this, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is what? It is the law. The law is the one that is the condemning factor when someone sins. So law then decides that the wages paid to the person who has been a slave of sin is death. The Bible also tells us that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all the law. So if a person commits just one sin in their entire lifetime, which, which that, that's never going to happen, according to the law of God, they are just as guilty as, as if they had broken every single one of God's law. Now, all this together says that it's, it's really impossible for someone to escape from that. In fact, in 1 Timothy, it tells us, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, 
But for those who are lawless, rebellious, the ungodly, and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mother, for murderers and immoral men, homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So if we choose sin as our master, the law then determines the wages, the earnings, the compensation for living that way. And of course, the wages of sin is death. That is the wages of sin. And so that has to be contrasted with the other word in the passage of Scripture in Romans 6.23, and that's the word gift. And what is a gift? But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Gift here is an expression of divine grace emphasized actually by the word free gift. The emphasis here is on the freeness of the gift. What then is a free gift? Well, a free gift is something that cannot be earned. It is that which no man can claim as his right. That's what, that which cannot be bought. That which cannot be worked for. If one tries to earn it, to buy it, or work for it, it actually cancels out the whole point of a gift. See, it is solely the result of God's goodness and God's grace, God's unmerited favor, his kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all. It is It is the free gift of God to people who are utterly undeserving of it and always will be. See, grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, which mankind, of course, cannot earn, does not deserve, and cannot merit. The Olympic Games has a section of competition called the Marathon Race. We're all familiar with it. The best runners in the world compete in the race. They really conditioned hard for years just for an opportunity to present their country in the Olympics. And yet, only one runner will come away with a gold medal. It's almost a shame that all that work put in and one person leaves with a gold medal. See, the runner could have earned that gold medal Uh, could not have earned that gold medal without years of hard work and hard training. But see, what happens is that we're conditioned to believe that we can't get something for nothing. So when we think about spiritual things, we often apply the same exact kind of logic. For example, if I'm going to live with God in heaven forever... I will have to be the best person I can be in this life so that when I stand before God, I can hand him my gold medal of achievement and certainly he will let me into heaven. Now, something like that, that's how people reason. But see, the Bible says something about attempting to reach heaven this way. And it is that old passage of Scripture in Proverbs where it says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. See, man tries to achieve heaven, how? Through religion, right? I'll just become more religious. I thought that way. I'll just go to church more. I'll, I'll do what I, sh- I haven't been doing more. It's good works. I'll just do more good deeds. Or morality. Morality is a big thing today, people think that if they're moral, somehow they're getting points from God. Now, it's good to be moral. It's good to do good works. It's good to be religious because the very foundation of the world, religious, means to be bound back to God. People come up with their own philosophy of how they should live their life and think that as long as I live according to my standard and my philosophy, I'll, be, I'll do all right. Some, of course, 
are self-righteous. Some believe it's self-improvement, whatever it may be. See, there, there seems a right way to people, but it really is, as it says in the Scripture, the way of death. Working your way to heaven seems right, but God says it leads to death. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, so that as sin reigneth in death, even so grace would reign for righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was Bernard Shaw who said, the statistics on death are staggering. One out of one people die. Other statistics say that those who have the most birthdays live the longest. It's funny, but it's not. Because what they don't understand is that there are, the Bible describes death in three ways. Physical death, we all understand that one. Where the body is, your spirit separated from the body. But there's spiritual death. Your spirit is separated from God, and you're spiritually dead the day you're born. No relation to God at all until Christ. And then there's eternal death, and eternal death is is referred to in Scripture as the second death. See, sin pays its full wages. Sin pays its wages in full. The wages paid to a person who has been a slave of sin is death. And that death, if they die physically and go into eternity, then that's the second death. So see, this passage is not merely, well, the Scripture is not merely referring to physical death we all face, but the eternal separation and the torment that all sinners will face upon their death in a place the Bible calls hell. And hell is the proper punishment for people's sin. This refers to the second death. This is the final, the irreversible separation from God. The fact from from the face of God and from the life of God, and it means eternally outside of God's life with all the consequent misery and suffering. So this is what God does in and through Jesus Christ. This is what he does. What what does he do? He does this. The free gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is God's gift, not wages. This is what eternal life means, sharing and enjoying the life of God for all eternity without the slightest suspicion of any admixture of sin or evil. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. We have eternal life the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. It is all because of Jesus. It says there at the end, in Christ Jesus our Lord, the life of man means the existence of man as he ought to exist in union with God, and consequently in holiness, in purity, and in health and happiness. Man, as God intended him to be, is man enjoying life. Man, as sin makes him, is man abiding in death. Have you not discovered that death is an enemy in this world? It doesn't belong here. There's nowhere to put it. It's the most confusing thing to try to think about. Why do we die? Yeah, we know we die because of sin. But ultimately, if we didn't understand that, why would we even die? It doesn't belong in God's creation at all. It is. It's an enemy. And it's described in Scripture as an enemy. But we have a huge problem that people do not deal with their accountability to God, their guilt of sin, or the reality of death in the right manner. See, the tragedy of modern man is is not that they know less and less about the meaning of life, but they are not bothered by what happens afterwards. They are not bothered by the reality of where they are actually heading. 
So you're heading somewhere when you die, are you not? God in his grace and mercy told us what lay ahead in the future. So there's really no reasons for excuses. And here may be an example how someone may think, maybe specifically an American may think. But Lord, you have, you have to see it from my perspective. I live in the United States of America. 90% of the people did not believe there was a judgment or hell. And anyway, I've always heard that you love everyone just the way they are. You see, I went along with the majority because I was taught the majority is mostly always right. Isn't that what people think? It was Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan preacher of the Great Awakening, who said almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Robert Peterson, in his book, Hell on Trial, mentioned there are five things being said about the fate of the unsaved after death. Life after death is unlikely. That's the first one. Second one, everyone goes to heaven. Thirdly, unbelievers get a second chance. Fourthly, unbelievers are ultimately destroyed or annihilated. And then lastly, unbelievers suffer eternally in hell. Well, if we were given a Bible test, which would the Bible say? The Bible would say unbelievers suffer eternally in hell if they do not believe in Christ. Rob Bell, I don't know if you ever heard of him, he wrote a book called Love Wins. And Rob Bell said this, Will everybody be saved, or will some perish apart from God forever because of their choices? That was a question. Those are questions, or more accurately, he says, those are tensions. We are free to leave fully intact. We don't need to resolve them or answer them because we can't, and so we simply respect them, creating space for the freedom love requires. Man, that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo there. Because, you know what, we need to answer the question, right? Where are we going to go when we die? That question can't be just left out there in, you know, space hanging there. It has to be answered. See, the word of God answers the question. God's attitude toward the sinner is one of judgment and condemnation and wrath without Christ. See, that's the key. Jesus Christ is the key. John 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, the knowledge of hell coupled with compassion should move Christians to warn sinners of the dreadful consequences of facing the wrath of God in the lake of fire. I saw a sign that had this written on it, and I thought it, 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 it kind of jumped out at me, and I, I, I jotted it down, and it said this, if there is a hell, when would you want someone to tell you how to avoid going there? If there is one. And there is one. So we ought to be telling people how to avoid going there. Jesus Christ frequently spoke of hell and warned men of the dangers of going there. In fact, Scripture clearly tells us of the reality of hell and what it's like. For it says in Matthew 13, verse 49 and 50, the angels shall come forth and take out of the wicked from, from the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of a teeth. Just a, another way of this, the scripture describing what happens when somebody is separated from God. The obsession with self-fulfillment and self-esteem is part of the reason that we're on a downward course in our society. Omission and neglect of what 
the Bible teaches about judgment undercuts any sense of accountability and responsibility for people. Unless we understand the death of Jesus in the light of the consequences and wages of our sin, the cross is just a symbol. It's just an emblem. You might as well just wear it as a piece of jewelry. The cross of Jesus Christ becomes meaningless. But actually, the cross of Jesus is what rescues us. That brings me to my fourth reason why Jesus had to die. And that's found in Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20. And it's this, because we are unable to remove our sin and guilt. Once we see that we are a sinner and we are guilty before, before God, we cannot erase it ourselves. We cannot undo it ourselves. We can't at that moment saying, wow, I didn't think I was that great a sinner and that I'm responsible before God and then begin to turn over what they say, a a new leaf and a new uh, way of living your life that's not going to erase the sin and guilt that has been committed in your life. For it says in Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, what the law actually does is it magnifies your understanding and your view of sin. Now, how many people on earth will be right with God based on their works, their deeds, and their efforts? How many? Zero. No one can be right with God like that. It's like this kind of reasoning person robs Wawa. On the way home, he gives some of the money to charity. Helps a little old lady across the street. Places some clothes in the Goodwill box. He gets caught. Eyewitnesses have positively identified him. He's guilty. When he stands before the judge, the judge asks him, how do you plead? And he says, I, judge, I plead not guilty. Because judge, you have to understand Yes, I did commit robbery, but on the way home, I did three good deeds. So being that my good deeds outweigh or outnumber my bad deeds, I should be set free. See, no one, no one would take this as justice being served. This is a manipulation of the system. See, justice is served when the judge upholds the law and says to him, the penalty still is to be paid by you. Five years in jail. See, God will not let the guilty go unpunished because God is a just God. And his justice must be met. We cannot remove our own guilt as Romans chapter 2, verse 3 through 6 tells us. But do you suppose it says, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? See, God is just. It is all God's plan because of his love, actually. God's own sense of justice had to be satisfied. And so God gave his son as though, the Bible says, as a propitiation or as a satisfaction for our sin. We seem, actually the biblical authors seem to be quite amazed when they write about how the Lord can forgive without ignoring sin and without compromising his justice at the same time. It's an amazing thing to see in Scripture. But listen to what Romans chapter 8 says. It says, For what the law could not do, 
weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. See, that's what God did. See, the Bible says eternal life is not the purchase of human merit, but the free gift of the love of God. And you have to see that the gift of eternal life God offers is too precious to be bought. Too full of God to be made by man. This brings me to my fifth reason why Jesus had to die. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it's this, because we needed someone else to die in our place. Jesus was our substitute. He died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what it says. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus' purpose in coming into the world is summed up nicely where it says in Luke, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. How did he accomplish his mission? In the person of Jesus Christ, God literally became a man and lived a perfect life of righteousness in obedience to his own laws and on behalf of his children. And as we have seen, sin against God's laws brings death and punishment, both physical death and spiritual death in hell forever, leading to eternal death. When Jesus died... He endured the wrath of God for us. He endured the anger of God for us. He endured the punishment of God for sins, for our sins. He died as the sacrifice for our sins, satisfying the requirements of divine justice, and took upon himself the punishment that was due for us, for our sins. The Bible tells us, for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just, Christ being the just, for the unjust, us, in order that he may bring us to God. So it is he who brings us to the Lord. That leads me to my last one this morning, and it's this. The last one, and did I say six or seven? Well, I'm ending at six. Sorry about that. (laughs) The the last one's simple. But we're, we're just unable to reconcile ourselves to God and remove the alienation that we have uh, been born into. And what is that alienation? The Bible says we're enemies of God. How how do you change that? How, How do you, how do you make yourself a friend of God? There's nothing you can do to make yourself a friend of God. It's no amount of good works, like I said, or, or anything you can possibly do. Romans 5 and verse number 10 says, For if while we were enemies, have you ever considered yourself to be an enemy of God? I don't think people wake up and say, you know, I'm, I'm an enemy of God today. We don't think like that. But see, the reason why we don't think like that is because we don't look at ourselves like God sees us. We don't see ourselves from the eyes of Scripture. Because it says in Romans, it says this, For a while, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, we were enemies, and the only one that can reconcile an enemy and an enemy and make them friends is God. And he does it through who? Through the death of his son. So the sinner cannot reconcile himself or herself to God. That's God's place. That's what he does. It is when the sinner repents and turns to Jesus Christ in faith. Only then, only then can can God the Father change his attitude toward that sinner of one of wrath to one of peace. 
one of wrath to one of peace. And even in Romans, it tells us there that we have peace by the blood of the cross. That's how we can be made at peace with God. So that means that all alienation between the repentant sinner and God is ended when someone comes to Jesus Christ, repents of their sin, and believes in Christ alone to save them. And this this change is solely based upon the death and the resurrection of his son. Nothing else, there's nothing else we can add to it or take from it. So this, actually I did have seven reasons. Jesus' death broke open the new way, and that's the seventh. That's the reason why. The only way that we can have a way broken up where we come into the presence of God is through Christ. And according to Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So there it is that Jesus breaks that way for us into the presence of God. And, and just this, the picture that I had up of the, the temple where when Christ was, was crucified and he cried out, Eli, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says, and Jesus uttered with a loud voice and cried out with his last breath, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and God made a new and living way into the presence of God through his own flesh. See, again, you cannot avoid, ignore, go around Jesus Christ. You must go through him. That's the only way that you can be saved. And so it it is really the death that broke open the way to God. And, of course, his resurrection we'll all speak more on next week. So it's the cross. So Jesus died to save his people from their sins. He does it by taking all the sins of his people upon himself. And because he took their load, his people are freed and no longer have the burden of sin to weigh them down or to judge them. He saves them by bearing the penalty due because of their sin, Christ being made a curse for us, suffered in our place. He died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He saved his people by bearing the wrath of God, the wrath of God's clean and clear and honest justice. Jesus has taken the sin, paid the penalty that was due us. He saves his people from the power and the tyranny and the dominion of sins which had mastery over us. And he saves us completely. That is, Jesus' work was so thorough. Everything was accomplished and nothing else has to be added to, be, to it or be done ever again. So completely does Jesus save those who receive him as Lord and Savior that he makes them fit to dwell with God and be one with Jesus Christ throughout all eternity, and that is the blessed good news. That is the hope of our salvation. If you can't rejoice in that, I don't know what you can rejoice in. That's got to be the point of rejoicing. Now, if you know Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, praise the Lord. Continue to live for him. Continue to serve him. Continue to follow him. Don't give up. Don't let down your guard. Continue forward, no matter what happens in the world. Keep going, because you're heaven's home. Remember, you're sojourners, as I've been preaching in First Peter. You're just passing through. You're the real aliens on this earth. You're going to be out of here someday, but God has some work for you to do, right? All right, so, but if you don't know Christ, if you're a young person here, never trusted in Christ, this is what you must do. These are gifts from God. Repent of your sin. That's what the Bible says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is a conscious recognition that you are a sinner and that you are turning to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can forgive your sin and make you right with God and reconcile you back to him. And then 
that includes belief. Belief in Jesus alone for salvation. In other words, that Jesus is not an add-on to everything else you're doing and trusting. You discard everything else. Everything else is this pile of scubala. All right? That's a nice way of saying it. I this is a family show, so I can't, <laughs> I can't say the, the word that maybe describe it better. But you get the point. You've got to discard it all. And the reason why you discard it is because Jesus Christ has done everything. You have to do just come to him, and he will in no wise cast you out. True saving faith always responds in obedience. And believe me, the gospel is a call from God either to be obeyed or disobeyed. And it has consequences. I already mentioned those. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, please come and talk to me or one of the elders or one of the people in our church and come and receive the free gift of eternal life offered by Jesus Christ. See, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you're hearing, is the day of salvation. And to all who come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he will receive you because he said he would because he came to save his people from the very thing that separates them from him, and that's sin. He removed it. He's taking care of it. Amen? Amen? And that is the blessed message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, those people that are being baptized this morning, you can be dismissed. Get ready to get baptized. We have four people being baptized this morning. We'd like you to stay and witness their testimonies and be a part of uh, what the Lord's been doing in their life. But let me close in a word of prayer, and then I'll depart. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for giving us ample reasons to not bypass Christ, to not ignore him, but, Lord, to actually believe in what he's done. For, Lord, through belief in Christ comes true salvation. And I pray, Lord, that if someone has not believed in Christ tonight, this day, this, this afternoon, this morning, Lord, would be the day they come and call upon you as their Lord and Savior and that you, Lord, would graciously receive them, cleanse them, wash them from their sin, and make them your children. I pray you would do that, Lord. So, Lord, lead those people to yourself. Encourage those who are already believers to continue on in the faith no matter what and not give up, not throw in the towel, not look back because we know, Lord, looking back means that you're not worthy for the kingdom of God, but continue on in faith and obedience. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.